picking up where we left off last time, some of, I think most of you should have a copy of the, the syllabus of what we're going through. And last week, Dad talked about the anatomy of worship. So what is worship? Who is it for? Just laying some of those basic uh, foundational things uh, for us. Uh, and what we're going to do tonight is kind of part two of that, which is talking about the principles of worship. And really what I want to do is, is ask and address the question, does God care how we worship? Does God care how we worship? We know that worship is, as we talked about last week, it's, it's ascribing worth or value or praise to something. And um, worship is, if you want to know what you worship, just look at what you love. Just look at what you long for. Just look at what you think about and what you talk about. Probably if you don't know what you worship, the people who are around you could tell you quickly what you worship because that's what you probably spend a lot of your time focusing on, learning about, talking about, all of that. And so we talked some about what worship is and then ultimately who it's for. Worship is for God and it's for His glory. But with that being said, the question is still there. Does God care how we worship or does He just call us to worship? Um, I think another picture I've heard people say is, uh, you know, sometimes people will go to a restaurant and the waiter will come up and say, what would you like? And they'll say, you know, just surprise me. And other times people come and say, well, I want this and this. I want the number whatever. You know, I specifically want this thing. So the question for us is as we look at God's word, which is it? Does God just give a kind of general command to worship and say, you know, have at it? Or does he give more specific direction to us? Um, and this is an important question, obviously, for us as a church planting work, thinking about um, worship services and having regular time um, together uh, on, on the Lord's Day. Right now it's once a month, but we hope it'll be you know, every week and uh, in, in time to come. And so we think about, okay, how do we approach worship? Uh, this is also an important thing. I think all of us have probably been in churches that have been engaged in the worship wars, right? Where people are at each other's throats about, I, I like this and I like that and I hate this and I hate that. And, and maybe even as a church planning work, we can kind of come with our own ideas of, I really want to see this in our worship. Or I really hope we don't do that. Or, you know, that can kind of be the way we think. And, uh, and that's not always a bad thing. I mean, there are some things that are good and other things that aren't. Uh, but when we, when we frame worship in terms of what we want or what we don't want, um, we can be getting ourselves off track. And so we want to kind of talk about that some uh, tonight. This is one of those lessons where I felt like I had way more material than I would have time to get through. And um, so I've kind of put something together, and hopefully it won't go too long um, or be too confusing. But if, if, you, if you find yourself you know, going through this and going, I have a lot of unanswered questions, that's okay. Because if you, if you also look at your syllabus... Um, these, these last week and this week are kind of introduction. And then after that, we have one, two, three, four weeks, which is really the heart of this study. Four weeks of just breaking it down and going through each of the different, what we're calling the elements of worship. And I'll explain that language tonight. And so we look at kind of how do, how do these principles uh, apply to the specific tangible parts of the worship service. So if you're, if you're kind of wanting to get more into the details of this, we'll, we'll be doing that in weeks to come. But we're kind of doing an overview at this point. So uh, any, any questions or comments about any of that or what was covered last week? I know not everyone was able to be here, but hey, Emily. Okay. Well, what I want to do um, as we 
begin to think about worship and the principles of worship, and specifically this question, does God care how we worship, I want to begin by, by reading from uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I was going to have you turn there in your hymnals, but that probably won't work tonight. So, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I, can, I can try and read clearly. Um, but the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 21, is actually called Of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. And there are a number of paragraphs where it talks about what worship is and what, what are the different parts of worship. And then it talks, as, as the title says, about the Sabbath day, the Lord's day specifically. But I just want to read the first paragraph because it kind of gives us the principles that, that they're using, the principles that we are using as a church plant to think through what, what is biblical worship. So here's what they say. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, paragraph 1. It says, The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. Now what are they saying there? Really, really what they're getting at is they're saying even, even just being on this earth is enough to see that there is a God and is enough to see that we're called to worship this God. And really, when you think about passages like Psalm 19 or Romans chapter 1, or even just look at all the different tribes, you go to the most remote corner of the world, and you'll find a group of people who have some concept of something that must be worshipped. And they'll have their own ways of worshipping. You don't have to teach someone that necessarily. It just seems to be innate in our human nature. Um, that's something that's, that's evident just by what we would call general revelation, right? God's, God's creation, general revelation. But, it goes on, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So really what they're getting at is this. They're saying that just by being a human being in this world, you can see that there's a God and that this God needs to be worshipped. And yet, general revelation, right, this world as it is, doesn't, doesn't tell us how to worship that God. It doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God. And you look at Romans 1, and it's kind of this catch-22, isn't it? It's like you can see enough about God to know He's there and to know that you are responsible to Him, but you can't see enough about God from the creation to know who Christ is and the way of salvation and all of that. So general revelation is important, and it has a role to play, but it's not sufficient in terms of actual godliness and obedience. We have to have that special revelation. So God's given us His Word. General revelation tells us that we are supposed to worship. Special revelation tells us how we are supposed to worship. So we hold these two things together. And really, what, um, what the Confession talks about in that first paragraph is something that, that's come to be known as the regulative principle of worship. Um, some of you will be familiar with that language. Some of you won't. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So if you're not familiar with that, that's okay. That's what we're going to be going over. Um, and the regulative principle is, is a, a principle for how we are to how we are to know what to do in worship, what worship is to look like. 
Now, there's a lot to cover here. And what I want to basically do tonight is go over, I want to kind of explain to you what the regulative principle is in a nutshell. And then I want to um, go from defining the regulative principle to defending the regulative principle. And we're going to look at the biblical basis for it. We're going to look at the theological basis for it. And we're going to look at the historical basis for it. Hopefully all within the next half hour. So, um, like I said, you'll probably leave here having more questions raised. Um, and that's okay. Um, I do want to clarify, again, what we're talking about, though, when we, when we use this language. Um, the regulative principle is oftentimes defined in contrast to something that's called the normative principle. And this is language that became uh, more common at the time of the Reformation, when you had the, the, the Reformation responding to the way of worship that had become instituted by the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church had a view that basically said, we can do anything in worship that's not forbidden by the scriptures. So if, if Calvin or whoever says, what you're doing in worship is, is not right, they would say, well, show me the passage that says I can't do X, Y, or Z. And that was the principle by which they kind of decided what's acceptable and what's not in worship. Is it forbidden in worship? Or is it forbidden in the Bible? If it's not forbidden in the Bible, then it's allowed. Now, they still had other ways of governing the church, you know, made declarations about what was and was not acceptable. But in terms of Scripture, it's only, um, you know, what's, what's not forbidden. The Reformation took, had a different view of that. And they said, well, when you actually look at how God talks about worship and how God calls for worship and how he describes worship, it's not just that we're able to do anything that's not forbidden. It's actually a, 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 more, a more limited, a more restricted, a more regulated view. And that view is that we are only to do that which is prescribed. So a, a reformed worship service would say, um, if someone comes to them and says, we want to do X, Y, and Z in worship, they're not going to look at their Bibles and say, okay, does the Bible say we can't do that? They're going to look at their Bibles and say, does the Bible tell us to do that? And if it doesn't, even if it's something that might seem to be a good idea, or even if it's something that might be appropriate in another context, they're not going to include that in their worship service because they're wanting to regulate themselves according to what God's Word says specifically. Now, there's a couple of qualifications I need to make there right at the get-go. Um, and, and there's some language that's, that's typically used when we talk about the regulative principle. Because some people will say, now wait a minute, I hear what you're saying, but I don't remember seeing in the Bible where God gave us a sample bulletin that tells us exactly what we're supposed to do. So how do you kind of draw the lines? That seems a little bit, you know, um, confusing to just say that God tells us what we are to do when I don't see this one place where God tells us what to do. Well, part of what we want to go through over these next few weeks is where Scripture does tell us what worship is to look like and what those things are. But there's some, there's some nuances here that I think could be helpful. Because when we talk about the regulative principle, we want to keep in mind the difference between elements, forms, and circumstances. Elements, forms, and circumstances. Elements are those parts of the worship service that we would say, God has called us, required us to do this. Can anyone think of a, an example of an element that would be in a worship service? Prayer, teaching. Prayer, teaching, yeah. Yeah. The reading of the Word of God. Paul, when he's writing to, to Timothy, says, devote yourself to the public reading of the Scriptures, right? 
he calls them in Colossians to encourage and admonish one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, these are, these are things that are commanded in the worship service that are, that are actual elements of worship. You can think of it in terms of a bulletin. If you came to worship service, which I think every, almost everybody was here for that, um, or any worship service you've probably been to, you know, you'll have those things, the reading of Scripture, the prayer of confession, the, the sermon, the, the Lord's Supper. Those are different elements that are there. And those are things that God commands us, requires us to have in a worship service. Now, some of those things are what we call occasional elements. So, for example, I don't think anyone would argue with the fact that baptism is something that should be a, a valuable part of our worship service. But you don't have to have a baptism every single week to have a worship service, right? Um, so there are some things that are occasional, but other things that are necessary elements. So to have a worship service where there's no reading of Scripture at all is not a worship service. You may be having a nice meeting, but it's not a worship service. So they're necessary and occasional elements. And those are things that are set in stone. We don't get to add to those, and we don't get to take away from those things. That's really what the regulative principle is concerning itself with. What are the elements that are to be part of the worship service? And on that point, we have to be very inflexible, because we believe God has said, I only want to be worshipped a certain way. I've gone to the restaurant and I've said, I want the hamburger with lettuce and onion and no mayo, right? And so adding or taking away from is getting the order wrong. And so it does have a very kind of stiff view of that. But that's where we come to talking about this, this, the other two terms of forms and cir circumstances. Forms have to do with the, uh, the, the nature of those elements. So for example, if you have something like prayer, God calls us to pray. He tells us to pray and worship. Jesus says, my house is to be a house of prayer. So we know that we have to pray in our worship service. But do we pray the Lord's Prayer? Or do we pray some other prayer? Is the prayer three minutes long? Or 13 minutes long? Um, those are all kinds of questions that God's Word doesn't say, well, it has to be exactly this way. God doesn't give us a sample bulletin. God doesn't give us a directory for worship that spells out all those details. He gives us those principles. These elements must be there. But the form that that prayer takes, the form that the sermon takes, the form that the song takes might be different, might change, depending on culture, depending on time, all those different factors. Um, another, and this is the kind of the last nuance I'll introduce here, um, another term is, is that of circumstances. And these are really things that have to do with worship more generally. It's not like one particular element. So, for example, if you all were here, uh, we had orange chairs. God does not say that you have to have orange chairs, thankfully. Um, <laughs> he also says you don't have to. We're not talking about an element of worship there. We're not even talking about a form that one of the elements take. It's a circumstance. It's something that is incidental. Now, there's still wisdom and principles that are there. You know, the kind of chairs you have will, you know, affect your worship in different ways. Wisdom is used, but God doesn't command or forbid certain circumstances. Another common example, God calls us to worship Him on the Lord's Day. But is that at 8.30 in the morning? Or is that at 11.30 in the morning? You know, God doesn't give us that specific direction. So when you hear me talk about the regulative principle, I think a lot of people kind of react to that at a gut level. I'd say that sounds really strict and, and narrow, and maybe unbiblically narrow, you know, almost a pharisaical kind of thing. 
but we do want to recognize well, we're not we're not talking about a kind of rigid uniformity where there's there's no difference or distinction at all. Um, it was interesting for me working in England for a year with churches that are very much committed to the regular principle, and then being here in the states and being part of churches that are very much committed to the regular principle, and the worship looked different, you know. And there were sometimes it's little things in England. It, it's it's almost unthinkable for them to think of serving the Lord's Supper while having music playing in the background. I've never been in a church here that doesn't have music playing while we're taking the Lord's Supper, you know? And, and you have a very traditional church here, a very traditional church there, very different practice. Now, that's not an element. The Lord's Supper is still served there, but the form it takes, the circumstances that are there, there's difference there. There's, there's diversity. So don't hear this as a kind of one-size-fits-all, narrow uniformity. There is a unity that is there, but not a uniformity narrowly defined. So, um, anyways, that's that's the regular principle in a nutshell. Any any questions about that? Okay, we're gonna hopefully flesh this out more as we kind of go through, like I said, the biblical, the theological, and the historical background or basis for this. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter twelve. One of the points that um, Pastor Rich made last time that I really appreciated was talking about how the, um, the Old Testament has so much to say about worship. And on the one hand, we, want to be, we know that Christ's coming does radically change the sacrificial system and all of that, so we don't want to just kind of blindly copy-paste the Old Testament system of worship. That's one danger to avoid. But another danger to avoid is just to kind of dismiss it or ignore it altogether. Um, and if we really want to get a biblical view of worship, we need to look at the Old and the New Testament. And uh, this is a passage that I think is helpful for us. Um, could someone read Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 to 32? Go, oh yeah, go when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go into dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, Take care that you not that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may also that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burned their sons and their daughters with the fires of their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful of. You shall not add to it or take it from it. Okay. So what's the context here? Well, God's people are about to come into the land that has been promised, and they're about to encounter all these pagan peoples. Now they know that they are called to worship God. He's made that very clear. But what he's warning them against here is saying, as you go into the land, don't, don't take your cue for what worship looks like. From all these pagan nations. Where does God call them to look. To understand. What worship is to be like. He calls them to look to him. Doesn't he? he? Calls them to look at what he has commanded. What he has revealed. And he says very specifically. Everything that I command you. You shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it. Or take away from it. You know when we talk about sin. We'll talk about. Sins of omission. And sins of commission. Right? Things that we don't do that God commands us to do, and things that we do that God commands us not to do. And in many ways, this is 
all that God is putting before them. He's saying, when it comes to worship, this is a matter of obedience, which means your sin can kind of manifest itself in one of two ways. Either you will be tempted to, to not do something I have commanded, or you'll be tempted to do something that I haven't commanded. And that's a danger that we want to avoid. Uh, we won't take the time to read through this, but just think about in places like Exodus 25 through 30, that whole section of chapters, or the whole book of Leviticus. Huge chunks of these books are actually dedicated to God very specifically, very carefully, very painstakingly walking through, this is how you are to worship me. This is how you are to approach me. This is what the curtains are supposed to look like. And he goes into this great detail. Now, obviously, like I said, those things are by and large fulfilled in Christ. So don't take me to saying we're going to copy-paste that Old Testament worship. But you do get this principle, you do get this idea that God doesn't just care that he's worshipped in a general or generic way. He cares how he's worshipped. That's an important principle for us. Um, Flip over to Exodus chapter 20. As with so many things, the Ten Commandments are really helpful for us in this. Um, Because these, these commandments tell us a lot about how we are to approach God. Really, the first four commandments tell us a lot about how we are to approach God. But I want to read the second commandment for us, which is Exodus 20, verse 4. Here's what God says. He says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what's at the heart of this of this command? Well, part of it, obviously, is God telling them not to make physical idols, right? But historically, the way that this passage has been understood, and I think the theme that we'll see traced out throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that God is, command- is really building on the first commandment. What's the first commandment? May remember, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me, right? God is telling them, kind of what we talked about last week, who you are to worship. But now the second commandment builds on that and talks about how you are to worship, right? You're not to worship the way that all the pagan nations do, like creating these images and creating these idols, because God's not revealed himself to them in that way. Rather, they are to, to worship him as he has revealed himself, as he has called them to, in the appropriate way, in the appropriate manner. And really, the other two commandments after that build on that. The first commandment tells us the object of our worship. The second tells us the manner of our worship. The third commandment, let me remember what's the third commandment. Shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It tells us about our attitude in worship. And then the fourth commandment, of course, about the Sabbath, tells us the, the time or the occasion for our, our worship. So there's a lot about worship in those first four commandments that we could talk about. But, but historically, that second commandment has been really important as kind of indicating to God's people that you know, he is, he is in, in, a, in an important sense, regulating what that worship is to look like. There are a lot of other passages we could look at. Um, You can think of Exodus 32 with the golden calf. Um, You know, it's interesting, when they they build this golden calf, Aaron says, let us make this a day of feasting to the Lord. So it's as if Aaron sees that this is, 
a way of worshiping God. It's not just the sin, although there is also this, the sin of worshiping other gods, as it were, but almost seeing that this is a way of worshiping the one true God. And we all know how God responded to that, didn't he? He came down very harshly and says, you're, you're, you're violating the Ten Commandments that I'm giving you right now, right? The first and the second commandment all in one. Um, and he, he does care very seriously about what worship looks like. We can think about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10.1. These are the sons of Aaron who were priests in the tabernacle. And they offered up what was called a strange fire or unauthorized fire. Different translations have it different way. And, and God killed them. And the striking thing about that passage is that, as far as we know, there doesn't seem to be a direct command that they're breaking as much as it is that they're, again, adding something to God's worship. It goes back to Deuteronomy 12.32, right? You shall not add to or take away from the things that I have commanded. Another famous story is, is Saul's sacrifice. Uh, look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. You know, even after Samuel is anointed to be, excuse me, even after Saul is anointed to be the first king uh, of Israel, he has this great victory, um, and God commands him to kill all of his enemies. And he doesn't just mean, oh, yeah. oh I was just saying, oh, yeah. doesn't really care. Right. And we can think of the story of, you know, uh, Uzzah, right, when they're transporting the ark, and instead of carrying it on the poles, like God commands, they say, hey, we'll just put it on a cart. God hasn't told us we can't put it on a cart, right? And then it slips, he tries to touch it, he's killed. And you read that story, and you're like, wow, that just seems really over the top, you know, couldn't you just have had a voice come from heaven and tell him not to do it or something? But I think part of what's being communicated is the holiness of God and our own sin, his infiniteness, our finiteness, and how seriously God takes these things, how seriously God takes worship. So uh, this is really part of God's graciousness, revealing this to us, so that we can worship him in a way that is, um, you know, feeding his glory. Uh, and, and we'll look more at why I think he gives us this command as well. But um, looking at First First uh, Samuel chapter 10, verse 22, Saul has defeated his enemies He's been told to slaughter all the, all the animals that he finds. Everything is to be destroyed, right? But what does he do? Instead, they, they kill off the bad animals, but they hold back the good animals. And when Samuel the prophet comes, he says, what's going on here? And Saul replies, um, what did they write? I write this down wrong. I did write this down wrong. I can't, I can't find the passage right now, but anyways, it's, it's, that, it's the passage where um, Saul says, well, Samuel, we, we didn't kill these animals because we want to offer them as sacrifices to the Lord, right? We're doing this to worship God. And what does Samuel say to Saul? Do you remember? He says, obedience is better than sacrifice. So we can't just kind of cover anything we want to do by saying, well, I'm doing it to worship God. 
or you know, my, my intentions are right, or, or, or I'm zealous, or that is not enough. Yes, God does care about our heart. In other passages, he'll say, yes, you're doing the right thing, but with the wrong heart, and that doesn't work either. But we need both, as, as Jesus will say in John 4, both spirit and truth. Spirit and that our hearts are in the right place. But truth and that what we are actually doing, the content of our worship, is also true and right and biblical. Um, 15.22, thank you. Thank you, 15.22. Yes? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, what's that? Right. And that's the passage, if you remember, Jesus uh, brings up that passage, yeah, when the Pharisees kind of say, well, why are your disciples eating on the Sabbath? And he, he points back to that principle there, but... Yeah. Two benefits of sense in which what Christ is seeking to get across is the fact that we ought to keep God's law. And there are, are times where, I mean, you see the light do not work on Saturday. But then there are also times of necessity. So, that, you know, so God's laws are not such to beat people over the head with. Yeah. But there's that balance of keeping in there as to who God is. And so there was that sense of, you know, yes, keep the law, but also preserving life. Mm-hmm. And keeping that as well, so I think that's what Christ was trying to get. Yeah, yeah. And I think another principle here, uh, and this is a good, good connection point, because you know you can think about what we've said so far, and we can think about some of the stories that we're reading, and then you can picture yourself like God is in the restaurant, and He orders His meal, and the waiter gets it wrong, and God kills him. You know, and you're like, wow, that just seems really petty, you know. But that's not really the situation. That's where the analogy kind of breaks down. Because there are reasons why God wants to be worshipped a certain way. Uh, and I think one of the important principles is that we, we become like what we worship. The way that we worship, what we worship, all of that is important and actually shapes and informs us as well. So God does want to be worshipped a certain way for his own glory. But he also, as part of that glory, wants worship to be a certain way. Because worship is not just something that we do for God purely and alone. It's also a way that God works in us. That's why we'll talk about what are called the means of grace. That in the context of our worship, as we are coming as God's people to praise and give glory and honor to Him, He also graciously works even in that to sanctify us, to make us more holy, to to knit us together. And so if we are saying, you know, I don't really want to do those things in worship. I don't really want to sit through a sermon. I don't really want to spend all that time in prayer. I'd rather just do this, whatever, whatever this is. We want to replace our things with God's things. Not only are we not obeying God and not giving glory and honor to Him, but we're also removing ourselves from these means of grace. And so I think that's part of why, there's a lot of reasons why, but I think that's part of why God says this is such a big deal, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and... and Jesus calls the Pharisees on this numerous points, talking about how they've replaced the commandments of God with the traditions of men. 
And that's something that will become important as we talk a little bit about the history of this with the Reformation. Uh, one last passage I want to look at. There are a lot of different places we could go, but I do want to look at at least one in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Uh, the church at Colossae is having these, these false prophets, false teachers who are coming in and trying to introduce new things into their worship. Uh, asceticism and... And, and prayers either to or through angels. It's a little bit confusing from the context, but he's trying to introduce these, these new elements, as it were, into their worship service. And Paul writes to them, and he says this in Colossians 2.20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Um, this is a passage that uh, the Reformers, Calvin, the Puritans, others, look to um, very often because they saw it as really capturing this idea that what, what, what our hearts constantly want to do. You know, you've all heard Calvin's phrase that the heart is an idol factory. And as we try to produce these idols, there's this temptation to want to, you know, be wiser than God, as it were, and to try and think of more creative or powerful or moving ways that we can do worship, right? But what Paul is saying here is that all these things, they may have the appearance of wisdom, but really you're promoting self-made religion, or the, the old King James called this will worship. Um, will worship. It's, it's, it's coming from our own hearts. And in many ways, that's the question. is are we, are we going to be taking our cue from human precepts and teachings? Or are we going to be taking our cue from divine precepts and teachings? When we think back to, you know, we talked about the worship wars, and I think this is in all of our hearts, that we come to the table with our own desires and our own agendas. Um, and a lot of churches have been split as people stake out claims on what they want. But I think what God's pattern for worship does, it doesn't answer every question. It doesn't clear up every controversy. There are churches that will equally firmly hold the regulative principle that will disagree about the application of that principle. That's okay. But I think what's helpful is that as you embrace God's pattern for worship, it shifts the ground of discussion from what I want to what God wants, from what culture says to what God's word says. And that's really, that's the principle I want us to get tonight. Like I said, the application of that principle is something that we'll flesh out in the weeks to come. You may or may not agree with how this church or other churches will always apply this principle. But I do want us to see that this principle is something that has a strong biblical basis really throughout God's word. Um, any comments on that or any of the passages we've read? My next two points are a lot shorter, so don't don't worry too much. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Would you include Cain uh, and Abel in this from the beginning, when, when they were bringing, you know, Abel brought the best vegetables, and then Cain brought the uh, uh, Abel. Yeah, Abel brought the the lamb. Yeah. Abel brought the vegetables. I mean, I also thought that it was from the beginning, like mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. the beginning of the beginning. And yeah. Uh, it is the worship, the way it was specifically worship, you know? Yeah. Right, right. 
Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's, that's an example that's often given. Cain and Abel, where both of them offer worship to God, God accepts one and not the other. And it's like, well, what's with that? Um, but God says, if you do well, will I not be satisfied with you? Now, it's, it's a little difficult to know because we don't have all the context there. Is that, is that just God not being satisfied with his heart? But when you look later, you do see the, the shedding of blood is significant. So I would tend to say, yeah, that's a good example of, of this kind of thing. Some people dispute that. That's okay. You don't have to agree with every one of these proof texts. You know, there's different ways of understanding these things. But I think, yeah, the principle comes through loud and clear. Um, well, not only is this something that I think is true biblically, but it also flows out of our, of our, out of our theology. I want to just kind of read through a section. This is a really helpful book called The Worship of God, Reformed Concepts of Biblical Worship. And it was, a, I think, a conference that they had, and then they did a series of, um, turned the lectures into a book kind of thing. But it has some helpful things in, in the chapter on the regulative principle. Uh, Terry Johnson, who's a, who's a PCA pastor, talks about some of the theological background to this, this idea. And he says, really, the regulative principle is rooted not merely in the, the several proof texts that he mentions, and some of those are ones we covered, but is the necessary implication of the fundamental principles of Reformed theology. So what he's saying is if you really accept and embrace biblical Reformed theology, the regulative principle is not kind of a, a strange add-on to that. It actually flows out of them. Uh, let's think, for example, of the doctrines of, of God and man. No system of theology has, been, has given as much emphasis to the creator-creature distinction as has biblical Calvinism. No other has so emphasized and celebrated the great gulf between the infinite God of heaven and earth and finite man. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways, right? That's what Isaiah 55 says. Or who has known the mind of the Lord, the Apostle Paul asks in Romans 11.34. The creature cannot know what worship will be pleasing to God apart from his self-revelation. Is not this the obvious implication of a reformed view of the natures of God and man. We, we don't know how to approach God without God revealing himself to us and, and drawing us in. Or we can think of the doctrine of sin. Again, no system of theology has emphasized the extent of the effects of the fall on human nature, as has the reformed faith. Total depravity has been the phrase that we have used to describe the corruption of all of man's faculties. That means our mind, our will, our affections... Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The hearts of the son of men are full of evil. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick or desperately wicked. There is none righteous. There is no one who does good. There is none who seeks God. Romans 3.10-12 So if we do believe that our own hearts are, are that corrupt, are our hearts a safe place to be looking for principles and practices to come to God and worship? Or should we be looking at his own revelation to us? Man is by nature an idolater, Romans 1, 18-32. He cannot and will not get it right. The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols, says Calvin. So we are not competent to devise God-honoring worship. If we follow our natural, even common sense inclinations, we will get it exactly wrong. A humble acceptance of this requires that we look to God to tell us that which he desires from us. We can also look to the doctrine of Scripture itself. Not only the doctrine of God and man, the doctrine of sin, but also the doctrine of Scripture. 
No other tradition has elevated the authority and sufficiency of Scripture to the heights that the Reformed tradition has. Sola Scriptura is a fundamental principle of the whole Protestant and Reformed heritage. Our final authority in all matters of faith and conduct is Scripture. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, says the Westminster Confession, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. For the task of ordering faith and life, the Scripture is sufficient. The Apostle Paul writes, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Does that extend to and apply to worship? I think we would say yes, of course it does. Finally, the doctrine of the church. And this is an important point, one that I think is often missed, because I think people can hear this principle and think that it sounds like uh, the church is really um, narrowing worship and therefore kind of stepping on people's Christian liberty. But as we look at the history here in a moment, what we'll see is that Christian liberty is part of what drives the Reformed tradition to emphasize this idea of the regulative principle. Now, just to build up to that, let me go through some of the historical background here. Uh, As you look at the early church, we don't have nearly as many documents as we wish that we had about the early church. So I can't pull out a list of bulletins from the second century. But there are some documents that do help us get a feel for what worship looked like. And, And one of the best documents that we have is, a, is one called the Didache, uh, which is it's pretty short. It, you can probably find it online. It's worth reading. But it, it's, it's an epistle written to the churches um, by kind of the disciples of the apostles in the late one, or early 100s, um, so early 2nd century. Um, and it talks about, in part, about what, what worship is like. And when you look at the worship of the, the early church that we have there, right after the generation of the apostles, what you find would look pretty normal to us as Protestants today. They read God's word, they, they pray, they sing songs and hymns and psalms, they uh, receive the preaching of the word, they have occasionally baptisms and things like that. It's, it's really pretty normal for us today. There aren't a lot of bells and whistles, there aren't a lot of added things, you don't have you know, all sorts of different things taking place. It's a pretty ordinary worship service from our perspective. And that's something that you see particularly in those first few centuries of the church's life. And part of that is because you didn't have church buildings and open worship. There was often worshiping in houses or maybe under the threat of persecution. And so worship tended to be plain and simple, which is really what the regular principle is arguing for. Simple, straightforward, biblical worship. Um, As you get into the Middle Ages and and Christianity goes from being an underground religion to being an imperial religion, all of the trappings of empire and imperial religion get kind of added to the church and added to worship over a period of years. I don't want to pretend as if, you know, Constantine means the church is now totally unfaithful. That is not true at all. Um, There are great faithful Christians all the way leading up to the Reformation. So don't hear me saying, saying that. But you do find a lot more things added onto worship. And what you find on top of that is that the church, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, begins to be very specific about what you must do in worship and must not do in worship. And they're not taking their cue from anything like the regulative principle, which says what God's Word says. Rome actually sees itself as having the authority to develop and add new things in worship. 
And so you'll, they'll be incredibly dogmatic about things like, what date do you celebrate Easter on? And there are huge controversies. And some people are cut off from the church because they celebrate Easter on a different Sunday than Rome does. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Or requiring people to bow down to images of saints. Or all these kinds of things that kind of build up over the course of the Middle Ages are what the reformers come into in their experience. And they see how the plain, pure worship of God has been perverted and eroded and replaced with all of these things. And it really is a situation like what Jesus is talking about when he says to the Pharisees, you've replaced the commandments of God with the traditions of man. In a lot of these medieval churches, you had priests who couldn't necessarily even read. And so there wasn't much reading of scripture. There certainly weren't expository sermons. The congregation was not singing. Oftentimes the congregation was not even partaking of the Lord's Supper, or at least not all of the Lord's Supper, maybe one element, but not the other one. And so you go back to the Bible, you go back to the early church, and you say there's such a gap here between what worship looks like in the Roman Catholic Church of their day and what, what worship seems to look like here. And that's part of what drove the reformers working out of these principles like sola scriptura to say, we need to be taking our cue from Scripture. And I don't, I don't have the, the freedom or authority um, as a minister, for example, if a minister is standing here, to say, he doesn't have the authority to, to bind the conscience of the believer and say, you must do this, when God's Word does not say you must do this, right? We, need, we can only require what God's Word requires in our corporate worship context. So that's some of the history that, that is at play there. And I think part of why it became such a valuable principle. Um, now again, there are a lot of things that might be valuable and good to do in other contexts that we don't do in a worship service. Um, but I think when you, when you step back and look at the, the biblical, the theological, and the historical background, we do see, um, I think, a pretty helpful paradigm for us to, to think about how do we worship. Um, like I said, I had a lot tonight, and sorry for rushing through it so much. I know there's a lot of things that I probably left out and questions that are unanswered. Um, are there any burning questions that people have before we go to, to prayer? Okay, we'll stop there, thanks. <laughs>